Chapter 16 of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aidan Maine. The Frozen Pirate by William Clark Russell. Chapter 16 I Hear of a Great Treasure. I lighted a pipe and sat pondering his story a little while. There was no doubt he had given me the exact truth so far as his relation of it went, as it was certain then that the Boca del Dragon, as she was called, had been fixed in the ice for hard upon fifty years. The conclusion I formed was that she had been blown by some hundreds of leagues further south than the point to which the Laughing Mary had been driven, that this ice in which she was entangled was not then drifting northwards, but was in the grasp of some polar current that trended it southeasterly, that in due course it was carried to the Antarctic main of ice, where it lay compacted, after which, through stress of weather, or by the agency of a particular temperature, a great mass of it broke away and started on that northward course which bergs of all magnitude take when they are ruptured from the frozen continent. This theory may be disputed, but it matters not. My business is to relate what befell me. If I do my share honestly, the candid reader will not, I believe, quarrel with me for not being able to explain everything as I go along. The Frenchman snored, and I sat considering him. The impression he had made upon me was not agreeable. To be sure, he had suffered heavily, and there was something not displeasing in the spirit he discovered in telling the story, a spirit I am unable to communicate, as it owed everything to French vivacity, largely spiced with devilment, and to sudden turns and ejaculations beyond the capacity of my pen to imitate but a professional fierceness ran through it, too. It was as if he had licked his chops when he talked of dismissing the captured ship with her people confined below in her cabin on fire. He had been as good as dead for nearly fifty years, yet he brought with him into life exactly the same qualities he had carried with him in his exit. Hence I never now hear that expression taken from the Latin, of the dead speak nothing unless good, without despising it as an unworthy concession to sentiment for I have not the least doubt in my mind that, spite of deathbed repentances and all the horrors with crowd upon the imagination of a bad man in his last moments, I say I have not the least doubt that of every hundred persons to die, ninety-nine of them, could they be raised from the dead, no matter how many years or even centuries they might have lain in their graves, would exhibit their original natures, and pursue exactly the same courses which made them loved, or scorned, or feared, or neglected before, which brought them to the gallows, or which qualified them to die in peace with faces brightening to the open heavens. If Nero did not again fire Rome, he would be equal to crimes as great, and desire nothing better than the opportunity for them. Caesar would again be the tyrant, and the sword of Brutus would once more fulfill its mission. Richard III would emerge in his winding sheet with the same humpbacked character in which he had expired, the Queen of Scots return warm to her gallantries, and the Stuarts repeat those blunders and crimes which terminated in the headsman or in banishment. But these are my thoughts of today. I was of another temper whilst I sat smoking and listening to the snoring of Monsieur Jules Tassard. Now that I had a companion, should I be able to escape from this horrid situation? He had spoken of chests of silver. Where was the treasure? In the run? There might be booty enough in the hold to make a great man, a fine gentleman of me ashore. 
It would be a noble ending to an amazing adventure to come off with as much money as would render me independent for life and enable me to turn my back forever upon the hardest calling to which the destiny of man can wed him. Of such were the fancies which hurried through my mind, coupled with visitations of awe and wonder when I cast my eyes upon the sleeping Frenchman. After all, it was ridiculous that I should feel mortified because he supposed me crazy in the matter of dates. How was it conceivable he should believe he had lain lifeless for eight and forty years? I knew a man who, after a terrible adventure, had slept for three days and nights without stirring. The assurances of the people about him failed to persuade him that he had slumbered so long, and it was not until he walked abroad and met a hundred evidences as to the passage of the time during which he had slept that he allowed himself to become convinced. I wished to see how the schooner lay and what change had befallen the ice in the night and went on deck. It was blowing a whole gale of wind from the northwest. Inside the ship, with the hatches on, and protected moreover by the sides of the hollow in which she lay, it would have been impossible to guess at the weight of the gale, though all along I had supposed it to be storming pretty fiercely by the thunderous humming noise which resounded in the cabin. But I had no notion that so great a wind raged till I gained the deck and heard the prodigious bellowing of it above the rocks. The sky was one great cloud of slate, and there was no flying darkness or yellow scud to give the least movement of life to it. The sea was swelling very furiously, and I could divine its tempestuous character by clouds of spray which sped like volumes of steam under the sullen dusky heavens high over the mastheads. The schooner lay with a list of about fifteen degrees, and her bows high cocked. I looked over the stern and saw that the ice had sunk there, and that there were twenty great rents and yawning seams where I had before noticed but one. A vast block of ice had fallen on the starboard side, and lay so close on the quarter that I could have sprung onto it. No other marked changes were observable, but there were a hundred sounds to assure me that neither the sea nor the gale was wholly wasting its strength upon this crystal territory, and that if I thought proper to climb the slope and expose myself to the wind, I should behold a face of ice somewhat different from what I had before gazed upon. But the bitter cold held me in dread, and there was no need besides for me to take a survey. All that concerned me lay in the hollow in which the schooner was frozen, but so far as the slopes were concerned, I could see nothing to render me uneasy. The declivities were gradual, and there was little fear of even a violent convulsion throwing the ice upon us. The danger lay below, under the keel, if the ice split, then down would drop the ship and stave herself, or, if she escaped that peril, she must be so wedged as to render the least further pressure of the ice against her sides destructive. I was about to go below again, when my eye was taken by the two figures lying upon the deck. No dead bodies ever looked more dead, but after the wondrous restoration of the Frenchman, I could not view their forms without fancying that they were but as he had been and that if they were carried to the furnace, and treated with brandy and rubbing and the like, they might be brought to. Full of thoughts concerning them, I stepped into the cabin, and, going to the cook-room, found Tassard still heavily sleeping. The coal in the corner was low, and as it wanted an hour of dinner-time, I took the lanthorn and the bucket, and went into the forepeak, and after several journeys stocked up a good provision of coal in the corner. I made noise enough, but Tassard slept on. When this was ended, 
I boiled some water to cleanse myself, and then sat about getting the dinner ready. The going into the forepeak had put my mind upon the treasure, which, as I had gathered from the Frenchman's narrative, was somewhere hidden in the schooner, in the run, as I doubted not. I mean in the hold, under the lazaret, for you will recollect that, being weary and half-perished with the cold, I had turned my back on that dark part after having looked into the powder room. All the time I was fetching the coal and dressing the dinner, my imagination was on fire with fancies of the treasure in the ship. The Frenchmen had told me that they had been well enough pleased with their hauls in the South Sea to resolve them upon heading round the horn for their haunt, wherever it might be, in the Spanish main, and I had too good an understanding of the character of pirates to believe that they would have quitted a rich hunting field before they had handsomely lined their pockets. What, then, was the treasure in the run, if indeed it were there? I recalled a dozen stories of the doings of the buccaneers, not to speak of the famous Acapulco ship taken by Anson, a little before the year in which the Boca del Dragon was fishing in those waters and I feasted my fancy with all sorts of sparkling dreams of gold and silver and precious stones, of the costly ecclesial furniture of New Spain, of which methought I found a hint in that silver crucifix in the cabin of rings, sword-hilts, watches, buckles, snuff-boxes, and the like. Lord, thought I, that this island were of good honest Mother Earth instead of ice, that we might bury the pirate's booty if we could not save the ship, and make a princely mine of its grave ready for the mattock should we survive to fetch it. I was mechanically stirring the saucepan full of broth I had prepared, lost in these golden thoughts, when the Frenchman suddenly sat up on his mattress. "'Ha!' cried he, sniffing vigorously. "'I smell something good, something I am ready for. There is no physic like sleep.' And with that he stretched out his arms with a great yawn, then rose very agilely, kicking the clothes and mattress on one side and bringing a bench close to the furnace. "'What time is it, sir?' "'Something after twelve by the captain's watch,' said I, pulling it out and looking at it. "'But tis guesswork time.' "'The captain's watch!' <laughs> cried he with a short, loud laugh. "'You are modest, mister!' Paul Rodney, said I, seeing he stopped for my name. Yes, modiste, Monsieur Paul Rodney. That watch is yours, sir, and you mean it shall be yours. Well, Mr. Tassard, said I, coloring in spite of myself, though he could not witness the change in such a light as that. I felt this, that if I left the watch in the captain's pocket, it was bound to go to the bottom, ultimately, and bah! he interrupted, with a violent flourish of the hand. "'Let us save the schooner, if possible. There will be more than one watch for your pocket, more than one doubloon for your purse. Meanwhile, to dinner. My stupor has converted me into an empty hogshead, and it will take me a fortnight of hard eating to feel that I have broken my fast.' With a blow of the chopper, he struck off a lump of the frozen wine, and then fell to, eating perhaps as a man might be expected to eat who had not had a meal for eight and forty years. "'There are two of your companions on deck,' said I. He started. "'Frozen,' I continued. "'They'll be the bodies of Trentinov and John Barrows?' He nodded. "'There is no reason why they should be deader than you were. 
It is true that Barrows had been on deck whilst you have been below, but after you pass a certain degree of cold, fiercer rigors cannot signify. What do you propose? he said, looking at me oddly. Why, that we should carry them to the fire, and rub them, and bring them to if we can. Why? I was staggered by his indifference, for I had believed he would have shown himself very eager to restore his old companions and shipmates to life. I was searching for an answer to his strange inquiry, why, when he proceeded, First of all, my friend Trentanov was stone blind, and Barros nearly blind. Unless you could return them their sight, with their life, they would curse you for disturbing them. Better the blackness of death than the blackness of life. There is the body of the captain, said I. He grinned. Let them sleep, said he. Do you know that they are cutthroats? Who would reward your kindness with the poniards that you might not tell tales against them, or claim a share of the treasure in this vessel? Of all desperate villains, I never met the like of Barros. He loved blood even better than money. He'd quench his thirst before an engagement with gunpowder mixed in brandy. I once saw him choke a man. He is very well. Leave him to his repose. In the glow of the fire, he looked uncommonly sardonic and wild, with his long beard, bald head, flowing hair, shaggy brows, and little cunning eyes, which seemed in their smallness to share in his grin, and yet did not, and though to be sure he was someone to talk to and to make plans with for our escape, yet I felt that if he were to fall into a stupor again, it would not be my hands that should chafe him into being. "'You knew those men in life,' said I. "'If the others are of the same pattern as the Portuguese, by all means, let them lie frozen.' "'But, my friend,' said he, calling me mon ami, which I translate, "'that's not it either. "'Do you know the value of the booty in this I answered, no. How was I to know it? I had met with nothing but wearing apparel and some pieces of money and a few watches in the forecastle. He knit his brows with a fierce, suspicious gleam in his eyes. "'But you have searched the vessel?' he cried. "'I have searched, as you call it. That is, I have crawled through the hold as far as the powder room.' "'And further aft?' "'No, not further aft.' His countenance cleared. "'You scared me,' said he, fetching a deep breath. I was afraid that someone had been beforehand with us. But it is not conceivable. No. We shall look for it presently, and we shall find it. Find what, Mr. Tassard? said I. He held up the fingers of his right hand. One, two, three, four, five. Five chests of plate and money. One, two, three, three cases of virgin silver and ingots, one chest of gold ingots, one case of jewelry. In all, he paused to enter into a calculation, moving his lips briskly as he whispered to himself, between ninety and one hundred thousand pounds of your English money. I stifled the amazement his words excited, and said coldly, 
You must have met with some rich ships. We did well, he answered. My memory is good. He counted afresh on his fingers. Ten cases in all. Fortune is a strange wench, Mr. Rodney. Who would think of finding her lodged on an iceberg? Now bring those others up there to life, and you make us five. What would follow, thank you? What but this? He raised his beard and stroked his throat with the sharp of his hand. Then, swallowing a great draught of brandy, he rose and stopped to listen. It is blowing hard, said he. The others better. I want to see this island knocked into bergs. Every sea is as good as a pickaxe. Ark, there are those crackling noises I used to hear before I fell into a stupor. Where do you sleep? I told him. My berth is the third, said he. I wish to smoke, and we'll fetch my pipe. He took the lanthorn and went aft, acting as if he had left that berth an hour ago, and I understood in the face of this ready recurrence of his memory how impossible it would be ever to make him believe he had been practically lifeless since the year 1753. When he returned, he had on a hairy cap, with large covers for the ears, and a big flap behind that fell to below his collar, and was almost as long as his hair. He wanted but a couple of muskets and an umbrella to closely resemble Robinson Crusoe, as he is made to figure in most of the cuts I have seen. He produced a pipe of the Dutch pattern, with a bowl carved into a death's head, and great enough to hold a cake of tobacco. The skull might have been a child's for size, and though it was dyed with tobacco juice and the top blackened, with the live coals which had been held to it, it was so finely carved that it looked very ghastly and terribly real in his hand as he sat puffing at it. He eyed me steadfastly while he smoked, as if critically taking stock of me, and presently said, The devil hath an odd way of ordering matters. What particular merit have I that I should have been the one hit upon by you to saw? Had you brought any one of the others too, he would have advised you against reviving us, and so I should have passed out of my frosty sleep into death as quietly, aye, and as painlessly, as that puff of smoke melts into clear air. Then perhaps you do not think you are obliged by my awakening you to life, said I. Yes, my friend, I am much obliged, said he with vivacity. Any fool can die. To live is the true business of life. Mark what you do. You make me no tobacco again. You enable me to eat and drink, and these things are pleasures which were denied me in that cabin there. You recall me to the enjoyment of my gains, nay, of more, of my own, and the gains of our company. You make me, as you make yourself, a rich man. The world opens before me anew, and very brilliantly, to be sure, I am obliged." The world is certainly before you as it is before me, said I, but that's all. We have got to get there. He flourished his pipe, and twas like the flight of death through the gloomy, fire-tinctured air. That must come. We are two. Yesterday you were one, and I can understand your despair. But these arms, stupor has not wasted so much as the dark line of a fingernail of muscle. You two are no girl. Courage! 
Between us we shall manage. How long is it since you sailed from England? We sailed last month a year from the Thames for Calau. And what is the news? said he, taking a pinnacle of wine from the oven and sipping it. Last year. Tis twelve years since I was in Paris, and three years since we had news from Europe. News, thought I. To tell this man the news, as he calls it, would oblige me to travel over fifty years of history. Why, Mr. Tissard, said I, there's plenty of things happening, you know, for Europe's full of kings and queens, and two or more of them are nearly always at loggerheads. But sailors, merchantmen like myself, hear little of what goes on. We know the name of our own sovereign, and what wages sailors are getting. That's about it, sir. In fact, at this moment, I could tell you more about Chile and Peru than England and France. Is there a war between our nations? he said. Yes, said I. Ha! he cried. I doubt if this time you will come off so easily. You have good men in Oak and Anson, but Jonquière and Saint-Georges, eh? And Maison, Cellier, Litendor? He shook his head knowingly, and an air of complacency that would be indescribable but for the word French overspread his face. I knew the name of Jonquière as an admiral who had fought us in 1748 or thereabouts. Of the others I had never heard, but I held my peace which I suppose he put down to good manners, for he changed the subject by asking if I was married. I answered, no, and inquired if he had a wife. A wife, cried he. What should a man of my calling do with a wife? No, no, we gather such flowers as we want off the high seas, and wear them till the perfume pass. They prove stubborn, though. Our graces are not always relished. Trentinov reckoned himself the most killing among us, and by St. Barnabas he proved so, for three ladies, passengers of beauty and distinction, slew themselves for his sake. Do you understand me? They preferred the knife to his addresses. I, said he, tapping his breast and grinning, was always fortunate. He looked a complete satyr as he thus spoke, with his hairy cap, grey beard, long nose, little cunning, shining eyes, and broken fangs, and a chill of disgust came upon me. But I had already seen enough of him to understand that he was a man of a very formidable character, and that he had awakened after eight and forty years of insensibility as real a pirate at heart as ever he had been, and that it therefore behooved me to deal very warily with him, and above all, not to let him suspect my thoughts." yet he seemed a person superior to the calling he had adopted. His English was good, and his articulation indicated a quality of breeding. Whilst he smoked his pipe out, he told me a story of an action between this schooner and a French Indiaman. I will not repeat it. It was mere butchery, with features of diabolic cruelty. But what affected me more violently than the horrors of the narrative was his cool and easy recital of his own and the deeds of his companions. You saw that he had no more conscience in him than the death's head he puffed at, and that his idea was there was no true greatness to be met without of enormity. Well, thought I, as I stepped to the corner for some coal, if I was afraid of this creature when he was dead, to what condition of mind shall I be reduced by his being alive?
End of chapter 16